I want to welcome you guys here. My name is Dan Halleck. I'm the lead pastor here, and, and I'm thankful to worship the Lord Jesus with you today. Um, most of you probably remember, I think most of you remember, a few years ago when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, right? You remember that? Okay. All of Western Washington, you remember, was just amped for, for several weeks after that because that win was, was more than just about the Seahawks for Washington. It was about the, the uh, 12th man. It was about Western Washington. It was about every fan of the Seahawks being a winner, too. And you'll remember that a few days after they won the Super Bowl, uh, there was a big parade for them in Seattle. Some of you were there. They said that about 700,000 people showed up for that and filled the streets of Seattle. And uh, what I want to do is watch a quick video, in case you didn't see what that looked like, just a short video to get in your mind what this parade looked like. Now my guess is that that parade was the closest thing Seattle's ever known to a royal parade, which in ancient times, um, which if you think about this, this was almost, this was like epic, this was military. They're riding in on tanks and Humvees and duck boats. I mean, they look like they just conquered Europe or something, okay? And um, in ancient times, they would have parades like this where after a victorious battle, the kings and all the soldiers would come back to the city and the city would run out to meet them and they would come in on their war horses and uh, people would be cheering for them and screaming because the victory was theirs. And uh, now I was thinking about this. What would people have thought if when the Seahawks and the coaches showed up, they, they showed up on 
things that were much less impressive. Um, for instance, what if, what if instead of riding Humvees and buses, they came in on a bunch of old junker cars that somebody, you know, like Richard Sherman found on Craigslist or something, okay? That, how would the crowd respond to that? Well, they'd obviously be really confused, right? And then it wouldn't take long for, for the crowd probably to get angry at whoever planned the parade uh, because that's not worthy of champions, right? And... Uh, that sort of thing did actually happen at a different parade. And it was the parade that thousands of Jews threw for Jesus when he returned to Jerusalem. Now, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have Humvees uh, for a king to ride in on, but they did have mighty war horses, uh, which a king would ride back into town. But instead of riding an impressive war horse fit for the king, Jesus rode a donkey. And more than that, he rode a donkey's colt into town. So that's what I want to look at. If you've got your Bible with you, turn with me to John chapter 12, and we'll be in verses 12 to 19 today. John chapter 12, verses 12 to Remember, Jesus had just been in this little town of Bethany, which was about two miles south, and two miles south of Jerusalem. And Bethany is where uh, Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead for four days. Uh, Bethany is where Lazarus' sister, Mary, anointed Jesus with this very expensive perfume, and then she cleaned his feet and dried his feet with her own hair. And that happened on a Saturday. And whether she knew it or not, Mary was actually preparing Jesus' body for his burial, which would come in just a few days. And the next day, on Sunday, Jesus decided to walk to Jerusalem, knowing full well that people were out to kill him. And so before we read John 12, 12 to 19, let's ask God to help us as we read his word. <laughs> Dear Lord Jesus, uh, you are the good king over everything. And we thank you for giving us your word in our language so that we can know you and so that we can follow you. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would please use your word to sanctify us, to change us today, because uh, we need to be taught by you. We uh, pray that these words wouldn't just go in one ear and out the other, but instead we ask that you would plant this passage into the soil of our hearts so that you might grow your fruit in our hearts and in our lives. As we read your word, we pray for those here who love you. We pray for those who don't love you. And we just desire, God, that, uh, that all of us might rest in what you've done while at the same time we run hard after obeying you and bringing you honor in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, John 12, 12 to 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Verse 
His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So Jesus was a wanted man. Uh, he, uh, the, the, the Pharisees uh, had put out this uh, request to everybody at the Passover festival that if you know where Jesus is, you need to tell us so that we can find him. And so that, that's what was going on in Jerusalem. It was the Passover festival, one of the big feasts for the Jewish people where they would come to Jerusalem from all over the countryside. Jerusalem grew from a town of about thirty to 40,000 people to up to, I mean, Josephus, one of the, the main writers we have from the New Testament, uh, uh, from New Testament times outside of the Bible, estimated that it was at 2.7 million um, during the Passover feast. And he said that around 250,000 sheep were slaughtered at the Passover. And so um, we don't know the exact numbers, but we know there were a lot of people there, and we know that everybody was talking about Jesus. Because the Pharisees had announced this, and then the pilgrims we, we read last week were talking to each other as they stood in the temple, and they were like, what do you make of this Jesus guy? Do you really think he's going to show up here? And, and when the crowd, this massive crowd in Jerusalem, heard that Jesus was coming, that he was on the road to Jerusalem, they ran outside of town to see him and to welcome him. And verse 13 says that they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And, uh, and while this crowd in Jerusalem is running out to see Jesus, you also have another crowd coming from Beth Bethany that is following Jesus and telling everybody about how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And these two crowds eventually merge into one awesome, huge crowd. And halfway between Bethany and Jerusalem was a town called Bethphage. So when Jesus got to Bethphage with his disciples, he told two of them, I want you to go into Bethphage and you're going to see a colt there. It's going to be tied up. It's never been ridden. And I want you to untie it. The owners are going to come out and ask you why you're untying their colt. And I want you to tell them that the Lord needs it and they're going to let you bring the colt to me. So the disciples obey him, they go get the colt, they come back, and they bring it to Jesus. And the disciples put their cloaks on this little colt, nervous, you know, um, it's unassuming, humble colt, and Jesus climbed onto it. And we also know that they brought the mother of the colt along as well, probably to keep the colt calm in the midst of this huge, massive crowd. And what happens is this, this large crowd basically throws a spontaneous parade for Jesus, just like the Seattle did for the Seahawks. And you got people waving palm branches in the air, and you got people shouting out praises to Jesus. You got people calling him the King of Israel. And then you got people laying down their cloaks in the road, and they laying down their palm branches in the road, kind of like a red carpet entrance, so that Jesus' colt doesn't have to walk on the ground, but walks on their colt, uh, walks on their cloaks and on the uh, branches. 
And verse 19 says that the Pharisees, when they saw this, said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now we read in Luke's account of this that some of the Pharisees were actually in the crowd and they told Jesus to correct the crowd and to tell them, tell them that you're not their king. And Jesus told the Pharisees that even if he did silence the crowds, that the stones would cry out to their king. That's an awesome verse. And Jesus rode that colt all the way to Jerusalem where the Jewish authorities were waiting to kill him. So this entire scene is, it's beautiful and it's complex, okay? Because there's a lot of different things happening at the same time. And a few weeks ago, Pastor Mitch did a great job comparing um, this entrance to Jesus' second coming in the future. And today I want to focus on some other aspects of this parade. And specifically, I want to answer three questions. First of all, what did Jesus think about the parade? What did he think about the parade? And second, what does this passage tell us about Jesus? And then third, what does this passage tell us about us? Okay. So first, what did Jesus think about the parade? Well, we know that Jesus intentionally fulfilled some ancient prophecies here. Uh, verses 14 to 15 say, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is, ri just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Often when the New Testament writers quote Old Testament passages, remember they didn't have verse numbers at this time, okay? Um, they combine several scriptures. And so the Apostle John here is mainly citing a, pass, a passage in Zechariah. And Israel's savior king uh, would ride into town on a donkey's colt, according to the prophecy. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus orchestrates this whole thing supernaturally, okay? Uh, he, he shows how sovereign he is and how omniscient he is, that he knows everything that's going on. He knows this colt's going to be waiting there for him. And he fulfills this prophecy as he enters Jerusalem. So, how does Jesus feel about this? How does he feel about this parade that's happening, all these worshipers around him. How would you feel about it? Most of us would love it, right, <laughs> if we're honest. Uh, we might be a little embarrassed that we got a parade thrown in our honor, but it would be pretty fun if every time you came back to town, people ran out to greet you and threw a parade to celebrate your return. It would make you feel pretty loved. And while we don't know exactly what was going through Jesus' mind here, he doesn't appear to revel in it. He doesn't appear to revel in the festivities. And in fact, uh, the other gospel accounts say that Jesus is actually saddened by the crowd. Uh, you remember when Jesus, we talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, in the passage where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, this great crowd came from Jerusalem to Bethany to mourn over Lazarus' death. And that was when Jesus saw them and he wept and he was greatly disturbed. And part of the reason why he wept was because he knew that most of them did not believe in him. They, they didn't believe that he was God. They didn't see him as their savior who had been promised to them for thousands of years. I think Jesus might have been feeling similar emotions as he rode through this massive crowd into Jerusalem. A 
according to Luke 19, 41 to 44, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, I'm sorry, and when he drew near, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with, within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So as Jesus rides back uh, into town on the colt, he hears praises. He sees the people. He hears the praises coming off their lips but he knows at the same time what's actually in their hearts. They're not worshiping him for him. They're worshiping him for what he can do for them. And most of them don't believe that he's God. And these are the Jews. These are the people group to whom God had revealed himself most clearly and to whom he'd given the Old Testament, the scriptures. Yet most of the Jews just want Jesus to save them, just save us from the Romans who are occupying us and give us political freedom. But they don't want Jesus to save them from hell and to give them eternal freedom. So Jesus willingly fulfills the prophecies as he rides on the back of the colt to Jerusalem, and he does so with a heart of lament toward the Jews, and at the same time, he knows that his church is bigger than the Jewish nation. Verse 16 says that his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So in other words, this whole parade didn't make sense to Jesus' disciples until Jesus had been crucified and resurrected and exalted in heaven. But the whole scene made sense to Jesus. And so he rides on knowing that his glory is tied into his suffering that's coming. Two, what does this passage tell us about Jesus? Well, let's start with what the crowd shouts at Jesus. Verse 13 says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The crowd here is quoting a psalm, Psalm 118, uh, which they commonly sang at the Passover. And it's essentially a cry for salvation. It's a cry, it's save us, save us. They're crying to Jesus. Uh, Hosanna means save us now. And Psalm 118, 25 to 26 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so the crowd is crying to Jesus and crying to God, save us from the Romans. Save us from this political oppression. And they believe Jesus is the prophet who can make that happen for them. So they call him the king of Israel. And they wave these palm branches because palm branches were a symbol of Jewish, uh, the Jewish people and Jewish victory. The interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't deny that he's their king but he does know that he's not the king they're hoping for. The crowd wants a king who enters town like the Seahawks did. 
That's what they want. They want lots of fanfare. They want him riding on the back of the biggest, baddest war horse alive so that he can come in and claim what is rightfully his and rightfully theirs. But if we want to find out what Jesus is really like, then we should look at Zechariah 9.9, which is the passage, the prophecy, that the Apostle John cites in verse 15. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah 9.9 uses four phrases to describe Jesus. It says that Jesus is the king. It says Jesus is righteous. It says that Jesus has salvation. And it says that Jesus is humble. Jesus is the king. Okay. Talk about these a little bit. Jesus is the king. It means he's the king of the Jews, but he's also the king of the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And he's also the king of the angels. And he's also the king of earth. And he's also the king over heaven. And he's also the king over every created thing. And he's not a temporary king. He's not an earthly king. He's an eternal, heavenly king. And as the king, Jesus rules over everything. Because everything belongs to him. He made it all. He made you and everything we see here. It's all his. What Jesus says is what goes. He's the king. And he has all the power in heaven and on earth. And he can make anything happen according to his will because he is the king of the kingdom. It says that Jesus is righteous. That means that Jesus has always done what is right, always does what is right, always will do what is right. And more than that, Jesus is righteousness itself. He is the standard by which we judge what is right and what is wrong. So if you want to know how to act rightly, then imitate the king. Imitate Jesus. If you want to know how to treat other people rightly, then imitate the king. If you want to know how to treat other people wrongly, then don't imitate the king. But Jesus is pure. He's morally pure. He's out with uh, blemish. He has no character flaws. And that's exactly the kind of king that we want on the throne. Amen? We, we celebrate that. That Jesus is righteous. And Jesus has salvation. That's what it says. This righteous king Jesus doesn't come to his people to torture them. He comes to save them. He comes to give them salvation. Okay? And we need to broaden our understanding of what this salvation is because it's bigger than we fully can imagine. But it means that King Jesus comes to free people from things they don't know they're enslaved to, and he comes to free them from things they do know they're enslaved to. It means that the king comes to give mercy to those who know that they need mercy, and he also gives mercy to those who don't know they need mercy. The King Jesus comes to deliver people from their guilt for wrongdoings that they know they have done. And Jesus comes to forgive people of their guilt for wrongdoings they don't even know they've done. 
King Jesus comes to save people from destroying themselves and their lives. People who know that they're doing that and people who don't know they're doing that. The king comes to give new life to people who know that they are dead to him and to people who don't know they're dead to him. King Jesus has salvation. And more than that, he says, I am salvation. I am salvation. And whoever trusts in me will have freedom and life everlasting. And it says Jesus is humble. So our righteous king who has salvation is humble. That means that Jesus, the king, has come not to be served, but to serve others. What king does that when you think of a king? And as the king, Jesus doesn't only look to his own interests, but he looks to the interests of others. That means that Jesus is not selfish, but he is selfless. And he gives away his life for others, even when people don't appreciate it. We have all the people who truly deserve to ride into town on the biggest, baddest war horse. Jesus rides in on a colt. And he has not come to make war with his enemies here. He's come to offer them peace. Think about it. Jesus didn't wait for you and me to come to him. He came to us to pursue us where we are at. And he didn't have to do it. He's the king. But by, man, the grace of God, he did. And he's humble. And Jesus is the righteous king who humbly brings salvation to us. Whenever we preach or teach in any setting at Cedar Home, one of our primary goals is to see and to show how Scripture reveals God as awesome and glorious and worthy of our worship. John Piper has coined this phrase, which I think of a lot because it's phrased how I preach and teach. It's, it's formed some of that. He uses this phrase, expository exaltation, okay? And it means that we want the preaching and teaching of God's Word to be a worshipful experience for not only the preacher or the teacher, but also for the listener or the student who actively worships Jesus during the sermon. And that's helped me a lot in understanding what are we trying to accomplish with preaching. We just listen to some guy on stage talk to us for 40 minutes. No, it's actually not an active on my part and passive thing on your part but it's actually an active thing on all of our part by which we are worshiping God together and agreeing with his word about how awesome he is. And so for instance, today as we've looked at scripture, I've tried to describe Jesus the way he describes himself in scripture as righteous and as the pure king over all of creation who brings salvation and who does this humbly and with love. And by God's grace, the Holy Spirit's gonna help us see that in scripture and then believe that it's true, and then respond to it by worshiping him with our words, with our hearts, and with our lives. See, a very dangerous thing that can happen is that we worship Jesus during sermons and during worship services and during our quiet times, but we do not connect that vertical relationship with God to our horizontal relationships with one another. 
In other words, you can spend 90 minutes each Sunday morning being God-centered while you're here. And as soon as the service is done, switch, boom. It just, a switch flips, and all of a sudden we're back to me-centered. You can have an awesome quiet time reading God's Word and praying, being God-centered. And then five minutes later, it's like you never had that, and you're back to me-centered. And so when we read breathtaking descriptions of our Lord, what we want to do is praise God for who He is, and then also ask, if this is how God is, then what does it mean for me? If I'm a disciple of Him, what does this mean for me? Because our attitude shouldn't be, Jesus is awesome, no doubt about it. And then you leave. (laughs) It's like, but whatever, I'm not. And I need to, it's like, I'll never be holy, I'll never be whatever. I'll never be good enough for God. That's not what God wants for us. We're disciples. That's why we use the word disciples. We're following this God. Jesus is going to talk about this next week where he says, you have to follow me. That's part of what it means to be saved. You're with me. So that's why we're going to ask the third question today, which is, what does this passage tell us about us? And obviously there's not time to mine the depths of everything in here, but what, what we'll do is just look at the four descriptions of Jesus we just talked about. And what do those mean for us? Well, first of all, Jesus is the king. So what does that mean for me? Well, it means that he rules over me. It means that he is my judge. I am accountable to him now, and at the end of my life, I'll be judged by God. I will meet him face-to-face, and give an account for my life. That Jesus is king means that all of me, he made me, my body and my soul, all of me is a gift from him. I didn't do it. Your moms didn't do it. God did it. All of me belongs to God, and everything that I have belongs to God. My family, my job, my house, my bank account, it's all his. It's all his. It's on loan to me for a little bit. And I ought to thank him for what he's given me, not just with words, but thank him with my life and by how I use my things to show the world that God is the king and I am not. Jesus is royal. Jesus is exalted. Jesus is the most supreme being in the universe. He's the king, and he's our master that we're following. Jesus is righteous. So what does that mean for me? Well, the fact that Jesus is righteous means, one, (laughs) that I can breathe a little easier because I know that God's not out to ruin me. Okay? That's, That's awesome. In fact, it means I can trust this God in every situation because not only does he say that he's trustworthy, but he's also proven throughout Scripture and even in my own life that he is trustworthy time and time again. It doesn't mean that I'm going to be perfect on my end and always trust him, but it means I should (laughs) because he is trustworthy. It means that Jesus embodies righteousness. Not wrongness, righteousness. And because he is so righteous and holy, This is how righteous he is. He's supernaturally holy. That means he's set apart. He is other. There's God and then there's everything else. Because he is so righteous, the way that we can relate with him and live in his holiness, holy presence, is only by being righteous. 
And so we try to live lives that are good and pleasing to the Lord, and we try to think thoughts and speak words that are righteous in God's sight, and that's wonderful because God saved us to pursue righteousness, not to pursue the evil that we were saved from. But even the best of us have fallen short of God's righteousness. We have actually rebelled against God. We've pursued unrighteous things. That's why Isaiah 59 tells us, your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sins have separated us from our, our God, our King. Um, our sins have hidden his face from us so that now we cannot reach the King. We cannot reach Jesus. The only way for us to be with him is if he reaches down to us. That's it. We can't save ourselves into eternal life. We can't keep eternal life uh, being sustained. Okay? We can't do that for ourselves. We need Jesus to save us and to sustain the salvation. Right? The great news it says in today's passage is that our righteous King Jesus says, has salvation for us. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means he didn't come to earth to curse us. It says this in John 3. Jesus came to save us from the curse that we're already under. And so Jesus doesn't want to see you destroyed. He doesn't want to see you hurt. He wants to heal you from your hurt. We've all been hurt. We've all been broken. He doesn't want us to perpetuate the hurt and the brokenness in our lives and in other people's lives. He wants us to be part of his kingdom which redeems this, in which he alone has the power to heal us of the brokenness. He came to take away our guilt, to take away our unrighteousness. He came to redeem us from the darkness and to bring us into the light. He came to give us life, and he, and he came to sustain us and said, you're not leaving. I've got you. No one's going to take you from my hand. He came to offer us friendship with God, the King. And this is another reason why his righteousness is so important. Because in order to restore us to God, he had to become our unrighteousness. Because that's the only way our unrighteousness could go away. You can't just sweep it under the carpet. That's not just, that's not right. He had to become our unrighteousness. That's why first, uh, Peter, it says, he bore our sins on the cross. He bore our unrighteousness. And the way to get rid of the unrighteousness is we've got to kill it once and for all. And so I've got to become it, and I've got to be killed. And that's what he did. He killed our unrighteousness. And at the same time, he transferred his perfect righteousness to us. So he replaced all that unrighteousness in us with his perfect righteousness. So that means that by faith in Christ, we are united to Jesus. You get this? We're hidden in Christ so that now what happened to Christ happened to us. The death he died, we died. The resurrection he rose, we have risen. 
It's, it's, it's incredible. We receive the righteousness that he earned. We are morally pure in God's eyes because of what Jesus has done for us. And God gives us new desires that now thirst for more of it. I want more of Jesus. I want more of this righteousness. I don't want more wrongness. My flesh is tempted by the wrongness. The world throws the wrongness in my face every day. But I want more than that, the righteousness of Christ lived out in my life. Not because I'm afraid that if I don't do this, God's not going to love me anymore. And not because I've got to work hard to maintain this salvation. But because I know that I'm saved because of Christ's perfect work for me. And now I just want to worship Jesus by being more like he is. That's what we want. And the fact that our righteous king comes bringing salvation means we need the salvation. Okay? This is something we need. We need a salvation that's not just temporary. Because we're not just temporary. This is just the start. This life is the pinprick at the beginning of the line of eternity that we're living we need an eternal Savior. We need a salvation that keeps saving us, that doesn't just start in this life and then ends around 2,500 A.D., okay? We need life that keeps preserving us. We need God to keep holding us in his presence, and only Jesus can do this. Only he can give us this type of salvation because he is the king. There's no other king. He's the only one who can do it. Praise God. If you've been at Cedar Home long, you know that one of my objectives in teaching Scripture and one of the objectives you'll find if you've got kids in children's church or if you're in youth group is that we want to show how every passage of Scripture points to our need for Jesus and to the gospel. Okay? Because not only is it true that Jesus is the high point of Scripture, he is the apex of Scripture and history, but you and I need to remember that our salvation is first and mainly about what Jesus did for us and not about what we do for him. Do not hear when I say that, that, oh, cool, I'm off the hook. That's not the message. The message is I'm saved because of what Jesus did for me and what an awesome God who's given me such grace that now I can pursue his righteousness because he's given me these new desires that want that. It's a truth that we've got to return to daily or else, I think Keller probably talks about this best, Tim Keller, but what will happen is if we, this is honestly, this, this is a real danger for many of us when they think, you know what, I go to Cedar Home, all they do is preach the gospel and I'm tired of it. I need to be fed. I need to go to another church where we get deeper. I've grown past the gospel, okay? I've heard that. And... We, uh, it's, it's a dangerous place to be um, because we need the gospel every day or else we will become utterly defeated because we know we're not good enough. We know we're not good enough. Or we will become utterly prideful because we believe we are good enough because of what we've done. And so we need the message of the gospel to remind us that it's all about Jesus. 
It's all about what he's done for us. The gospel is not just for non-Christians or new Christians. And so this is why we preach the gospel every day to ourselves. That's why I encourage you to preach it to yourself every day and to share it with, this is why God gave it to us to share with other people. I want you to tell other people about the grace of God. (laughs) That's what he says. What a gift to tell others about God's amazing grace. And the reason that I remind us that we're saved by grace, especially those of us who have been following Jesus a long time, is because I don't want us to be utterly crushed or prideful when we look at the last quality of Jesus in this passage. It says Jesus is humble. So what does that mean for us? Are we his disciples? Do I consider myself a disciple of Christ? Do I want to follow in Jesus' footsteps? Then how are you doing with humility? Humility doesn't mean just being a nice person. Humility doesn't mean being a quiet person. Humility means you exist not to serve yourself, but to serve others. You exist. You are here at Cedar Home. You are at your job. You are in your house. You are on the baseball field. You are in the school not to tear down others, but to build up others. You exist not to seek position, but to give your position away like Jesus did. Humility means making great sacrifice for the sake of others and being glad if nobody but God ever knows about it. Humility doesn't just mean doing humble tasks that nobody else wants to do. That could mean part of it. But this is the truth. You can do humble tasks like cleaning a toilet, sweeping the floor, whatever. You can do all that and still be a very prideful and angry person. Humility means gladly serving others as though you're serving Jesus and not people. Humility means we don't claim anything is ours because we truly believe it all belongs to God. That's much easier said than done. It's much easier to say that than to do to believe that my kids belong to God. They're not actually mine. I'm a steward of them for a while, but they belong to God. My job isn't mine. My house isn't mine. My family isn't mine. My, my bank account isn't mine. My whatever isn't mine. Humility means that whether you've been at Cedar Home one year or 80 years, you know that this church doesn't belong to you. It's God's. You are not the God of this church. Neither am I. Jesus is. Humility means that when you serve on a ministry, ministry team at Cedar Home or at your workplace or school, you're not there to push your agenda or else you run home with all your cookies. It means you're there to seek God's will with the team and then you serve gladly to do what the team decides to do. That's what humility means. Humility means seeking and working to forgive people who have hurt you. Because you know that you've hurt God and he forgave you. Humility means being humble enough to admit when I'm wrong and to say I acted sinfully and I confess that to God and to the 
perhaps to the person I sinned against, and I'm, I need to repent from that sin. That's humility. And all of our pride fights against that. Humility means that you and I ask God to help us live God-centered lives rather than me-centered lives. Jesus, if you look at Jesus, he was totally God-centered. There were so many times when Jesus could have made me-centered decisions, doing what was best for him, but instead, we see this over and over again in John. He submits to God the Father, he trusts God the Father, and he says, not my will, but yours be done. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a fickle worshiper of Jesus like the people in this crowd were. I don't want to worship Jesus on Sunday with my lips, but be a bitter, angry, evil person in my heart. We don't want to be that. We don't want to use God. We want to worship God for who he is. We want to be humble like God is. We want to treasure God in our hearts so that what comes out of our mouths is actually a reflection of what is in our heart and we want to be abounding in humility and love with how we treat others everybody else christians non-christians everybody because we're not we need to remember this we're not saved by our humility but god-centered humility is a powerful evidence that you have been saved if god's working that out in your life the passage says that Jesus is the righteous king who humbly brings to us salvation. May God give us grace as we seek to celebrate him and to imitate him. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage. What a privilege it is to open your word and to treasure you, to worship you for who you are, and to know that you yourself have entered into our lives, into our spirits, and made us born again so that we can have the same life that's in you. Thank you, God, that uh, you want to redeem our lives. And we just admit, God, we need your help. We cannot do this on our own. Please forgive us for our pride. Please forgive us for seeking to be served instead of seeking to serve others. Please forgive us for hurting others with our words and with our thoughts. You're our king. We want to be like you. We need you to save us. We need you to preserve our salvation for us, and we thank you that you promised to do that for us. Please purge the ugliness of sin out of our lives. Please make us humble like you. Please show us how to love others. Help us, God, to not be passive recipients in the sanctification process, but also to take the action that you told us to take, to put on the armor of God, to open the word, to be in fellowship, to be humble for our brothers and sisters in Christ and towards the rest of the world. We thank you, God, for this day. We pray all this. Please give us humility. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.